Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down All is Possible, the fourth episode of season four of Star Trek Discovery. We'll summarize the plot of the episode and share our observations. Following all of that, we'll provide an overview of recent Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis does contain spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the, the synopsis for All is Possible. Discovery remains in orbit around Navarre as its Science Institute staff and Stamets continue to try to analyze the dark matter anomaly to learn how they may prevent future catastrophes caused by the entity. Saguru conveys to Captain Burnham that Federation President Relic wants them to be present during the negotiations to bring Navarre back into the Federation. Meanwhile, in a session with ship's counselor and physician, Dr. Colbert, Lieutenant Tilly admits to having doubts about her career path to one day become a starship captain. Following Colbert's recommendation, Tilly has engaged in new experiences, but none appear to be satisfactory. He then tells her about an opportunity to mentor Starfleet cadets on a training mission. She accepts the assignment and decides to take Adira along with her. At Starfleet headquarters, Dr. Kovic introduces Tilly and Adira to the motley trio of cadets composed of Gavrev, a Tellurite male, Haral, an Orion male, and Sasha, a human female from Titan. Kovic cautions Tilly that they, like other cadets, grew up isolated and disconnected from one another outside of their own worlds due to the burn. The training section is to serve as a team-building opportunity so they can learn how to trust each other. On a shuttle piloted by Lieutenant Callum, the group headed to Gyron, an in-class moon, to conduct a planetary analysis. Tilly provides assignments to the cadets, as well as Adira, who initially balks at being treated like one of the novices. Suddenly... The ship is incapacitated by a rogue gamma ray burst. Tilly orders them to brace for impact. The ship crash lands not on Garon, but on Koltos, a Class L planet. The atmosphere is breathable, but environmentally hostile. Callum is killed, and Haral asks if the circumstances is part of the simulation. Tilly lets them know that this is not a drill, and Callum is an actual casualty. When the ship's communications appear inoperable, Tilly tries to calm nerves so the situation does not degenerate into chaos. Yet, the situation worsens when large, powerful creatures native to the planet threaten to compromise the ship. Hostilities continue to rise as Gavrev voices his animosity towards Harrell since his own families suffered greatly under the foot of the, of the Emerald Chain cartel that had previously controlled much of the galaxy until broken up by the Federation. Knowing they were to rendezvous with the USS Armstrong in six hours, Tilly tells them they should hike to a ridge where their signal would have a better chance of being detected. The cadets are leery about leaving the relative safety of the ship to venture out into a hostile environment, but they obey Tilly's orders. When a storm arises and they see two of the giant creatures headed their way, the cadets argue over the best plan of action. Anxious about their plight, Adira starts to walk away from the group, but soon finds herself unable to move as ice begins to encase her feet and travel up her body. Using a rope, Tilly and the cadets are able to work together to free her. Tilly also gets Haral to reveal that he was the son of an Orion activist who contended with the responsibilities of all Orions to speak out against the Emerald Chain. Knowing this caused Gavrov to soften his perception of Harrell. Sasha also admits she had been dismissive of Harrell's recommendations to protect themselves while on their journey. Tilly gets the group to the ridge. 
but the creatures are so close they may all be killed before they can be rescued. Adira volunteers to distract the creatures to give the others time to contact the USS Armstrong. But Tilly orders Adira to stay put, since she knows she must take on that dangerous task that may mean that she must sacrifice her life to give the others a chance to be rescued. Tilly attracts one of the creatures. However, the other one makes its way up the ridge towards Adira and the cadets. Just as it seems their efforts will end in futility, they are rescued by the Armstrong. Back on Navarre, Saru and Burnham find Navarre President Trina and Federation President Rylak in a stalemate over the terms of Navarre rejoining the Federation. Trina demands an out clause for Navarre if circumstances arise that necessitates them leaving the Federation. Rylak argues this condition cannot be met since other members would demand the same clause and this would consequently weaken the effectiveness of the Federation. Burnham and Saru lose the, use diplomacy to persuade Rylak and Trina to accept Burnham as a liaison to work out a solution acceptable to both parties. After Tilly returns to the ship, Burnham meets her in the lieutenant's quarters. Tilly confesses that the captain's seat was not her aspiration, but something she undertook only to please her mother. Tilly realizes she would be better suited on the staff of Starfleet Academy. Burnham supports her friend's decision. As a subplot, Book engages in sessions with Dr. Colbert as it seemed as if he were slipping back into depression over the loss of his family and homeworld. At the end of the session with Colbert, Book knows he is still not able to effectively manage his grief. However, he learns that healing from this loss will look and feel differently than what he's done before because the very thing he, he used to heal himself in the past is what he's grieving over, that is, the loss of Quajon. Also, Book recognizes that his powers of empathy could allow him to help Dr. Colbert as the doctor continues on what he, uh, uh, continues on with his relatively new role as the ship's counselor. However, he can only do so when Colbert admits he is willing to allow him to. So just to give you some of the credits behind this episode, it was written by Eric J. Robbins and directed by John Ottman. Now, Robbins is a probably better known as a post-production coordinator on such TV series as Amazon's Homecoming and Falling Water um, for USA Network. So here's a fun fact. Falling Water starred David Ajala. Um, this is Robbins, and this is Robbins' first TV script ever produced. Likewise, this is Ottman's first time directing for Discovery or any TV series. During season three, he served as a consulting producer on Discovery, but he is best known as a composer. He has written music for such films as The Usual Suspects, Superman Returns, At Pupil, the first two Fantastic Four movies from Fox, and several of the X-Men films. Well, here's another fun fact. There's two. Okay. First of all, uh, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer featured Doug Jones as the title character in an independent film he directed called Urban Legends Final Cut featured Anson Mount in the cast. So he's all, they're both all wrapped up with uh, Star Trek connections. All right. So let's get into the discussion because that's really the meat of what we wanted to, this podcast to be about. Once again, we're given three storylines to follow in this week's episode. But this time, our three threads did add up to more than the sum of the parts. They each moved this, the season's narrative further along while at the same time exploring this week's theme, which obviously is trust. In distinct and very different ways, they approached that subject. 
Now, Adele and I will dig deep in as we uncover and share our relative observations on the episode. Yeah, so let's dig a little deeper into the theme of trust. As you know, trust is a belief in someone or something. Tilly has a snow globe espousing the belief that all is possible. I mean, it's written right there on clear. the right. snow globe. Right, right, right. You can't miss it. <laughs> That's a wonderful aspiration, but in the levels of faith needed to believe that is just as difficult in the 32nd century as it is in the 21st. Right. That type of faith starts with a significant amount of confidence built on past experiences and a certain level of trust. But in each of our tales, past experiences undermine the trust needed and instead gives rise to skepticism to the possibility of achieving anything. We see that in the negotiations between the Federation and Navarre amongst the motley crew of Starfleet cadets Tilly must lead, and in Book's grief counseling session with Dr. Colbert. So let's start off with the Federation of Our Negotiations. For the second time, President Relic has pulled Michael into a delicate situation dealing with Navarre. This time, it's during the final stages of negotiation around Navarre rejoining the Federation. She also insists that Saru be present at the meeting as well, but neither one of them knows the specific role the president wants them to play. In fact, she she directs them just to be quiet. Yes. When it becomes clear that there is a request by Navarre for a clause allowing the planet to leave the Federation at will, the opposition to, to come to some mutual agreement is met with an entrenched resistance on both sides. Navarre has more than a hundred years of reasons to mistrust the Federation. On top of the original reasons, President Trina reiterates uh, the why they left the Federation in the first place. That is, and the Romulans have their own reasons for mistrust. These include decades of suspicions toward the expansion of Terran space exploration. The amount of trust needed to believe a former enemy is willing to help you avoid Romulan societal genocide is huge. Equally huge are the barriers erected when that former adversary abandons that same rescue mission. Right, yeah, when you think about it, when you say, I'm going to save you, and then all of a sudden you say, well, we decided we're not going to do that. That really doesn't set up a, a, a clear sense that, you know, I can trust what you're saying and what kind of treaty that you're going to create with me. Yeah, and what we're talking about, you know, just to be clear, is, you know, the events that happen around Picard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. However, the Federation has equally valid reasons for refusing to entertain Navarre's request. President Relic objectives is to repair the damage done to the collective strength of the Federation after having lost so many members since the burn. Going from a maximum strength of of almost 200 member planets and over 7,100 affiliates to a mere 59 has taken its toll on security, on unity, and on cohesion for thousands of species throughout the Alpha Quadrant. We can identify with this situation because human history has numbers of examples, even some in the last 50 years, where treaties that were broken because of one or two members wanted to dissolve the union. In any cooperative alliance of nation states or even states, the example the UN, NATO, or European Union, a relatively easy exit policy for members can prove to have serious unforeseen ramifications along the way. The Federation just ended hostilities with the Emerald Chain. They were an Orion-led alliance that would have never been a threat to a stronger Federation in the 24th century. But in this weakened state, the chain almost brought them to their knees. Obviously, the president's reason for having Michael and Saru present at the negotiations is to capitalize on the trust Navarre has in both of them. Saru's relationship with President Trina makes him a trusted confidant 
and one capable of receiving discreet messages. Likewise, Michael's biography makes her an equally trustworthy presence for Navarre. That's why they're, they're able to develop a compromise that suits both parties. However, the person with whom Michael feels the greatest unease is President Ryluck. Also, the conversation they had over sacrifice and the appropriate level of risk uh, shows that her lack of transparency, transparency makes building trust with her difficult. Instead of being open and honest, Rylak prefers manipulation and hiding the true meaning, meaning of her actions. When Michael said that she could be more useful if the president were more straightforward, Rylak's one-word response was, understood. Not yes or you're right, just an ambiguous, non-committal answer. Well, we're going to be revisiting this exchange in the future because it will remain an issue until the problem is resolved. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the method of behavior that Rillick actually has presented herself. This is how she functions. Right. And she's not going to change just because Michael says, I need you to change. Right, and that's because she's a political animal. Well, it's more yeah. so than a political animal. I think she, it's clear from her that she likes to, as Vance said, she likes to be the conductor. She likes to control. Or the puppeteer. I think that's even a better ex yeah. uh, uh, analogy. She likes to control things from the from behind and not be very upfront about how she she's working with you or trying to get you to respond in the ways that she wants. Right. It's almost as though she doesn't trust that. Oh, she doesn't that, trust at all. She, yeah. she knows she feels she's very confident in her ability to get an outcome she wants, but she doesn't trust you to know what that might be. Right. It's more through sleight of hand right, than right. being transparent. Yeah. She doesn't reveal, she doesn't reveal her cards to you. She doesn't share. <laughs> she would be if it was a kindergarten report right. card. So, you know, she doesn't share. She doesn't share. That's right. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the to the next storyline, which was Tilly and the Cadets. Following in a Star Trek tradition, there are many episodes built on around the crash of a shuttlecraft on an abandoned planet. You would think that, in spite of all the life that they found out in space, there are still enough planets out there with nothing on them. Yeah, there are. <laughs> I mean, there are. Yeah, there are. There so the average, so, so the advantage is that their chances are they're going to fall on more, more of those that are abandoned that ha may have an atmosphere. That's as, correct. Than, than those that would be. Tilly and her cadets find themselves in a dire situation where trust in those who you're stranded with must be established in order to survive. And so the Tellerite who suffered under the Elmer Chain occupation must come to trust an Orion crewmate. A young woman from a former Earth colony on Titan must denounce the xenophobia that comes with never having seen a member of a non-human species until leaving her home planet. Right. And for Adira, she has to come to rely on others as opposed to leaning in on her own knowledge of what she she can do and what she's capable of. Right. Um, this is a very familiar storyline for Star Trek and most action-adventure um, fiction. So it's, it's less a surprise as to how the story concludes, and it's more curious about what direction in which this story and the characters that it establishes as well as the situations could be leading us toward. We know that Mary Wiseman's Tilly is a fan favorite. I mean, I like her. I, you like her, too. Yeah, I like her. Even Will Whedon is among the people who, feel a gr who feels a great deal of affinity with the character. So getting rid of her for good is not an option. To have Tilly leave Discovery to teach at the newly reopened Starfleet Academy adds an interesting wrinkle to some clues we've gotten from recent production news. Now, I believe that the announced Starfleet Academy series will be placed during the 32nd century to capitalize on all of the emphasis that it appears to be getting on Discovery this season. Right, because this is the second time we've talked about the Academy. We saw the cadets yep. in the first episode graduate, so yeah. Yeah. Also, it would allow them to build a cast for the series with, with a familiar face. Tilly's 
obviously is in the mix. The added opportunity of having supporting characters like Admiral Vance, President Rylak, and Kovach pop up periodically could entice fans who have become acquainted with them over the last two seasons. And also, I think it would be a good use of the um, of the uh, scenery, you know, and the props and everything that they've already built. You're uh, already factoring in the cost of saving money on uh, oh, using right. stuff we've already built. Right, instead of just putting it in the story. Yeah, okay. Right now, this is just our theory. I'm sure we'll find out more concrete information as things progress. Well, I think that actually is a good, um, a good prediction. Because you're right. There, there's never been any conversation or any interview with, with Kurtzman where he said that the Starfleet Academy show was going to be in the 24th century. And now we get, you know, now that we got TV shows that play in different time periods of Star Trek fiction, I think there's a perfect opportunity for us to have the Starfleet Academy be in the 32nd century with, with Discovery, and it makes more sense. Yes. Okay, so let's uh, move on to book. Um, so books counseling sessions are a really engaging and interesting way of looking at the storyline. Um, all of the calm and peace of mind that book experienced after the mind melt has now obviously dissipated. Once again, he's in turmoil. This follows the path some people dealing with overwhelming levels of loss and grief go through. Now, part of the problem is that he can't use his traditional forms of healing because they're directly connected to the planet and the abundance of life that was there, the empathy, the connection to the nature, all of those things are part of what he would use to heal himself. Now that they're all gone, he's rudderless. He doesn't know where to begin or where to go to find a substitute. In one of the other storylines, Saru says to President Trina that truth is a journey. And although it makes sense in the, for the events that transpires in that story, it also resonates with this one. Whether the statement is true, Book is on a quest for an answer to a question of why. Why was, he, why was his entire family, planet, and culture destroyed? But more importantly... Why did he survive? The path to healing is really a straight line with trauma and pain to balance uh, and calm. Book's processing of grief will most likely be an ongoing battle for him. It will probably take a bit more time to resolve uh, during the season, as long as it provides us with, potential, with the potential for drama and character development we're okay with going on this journey with the last son of Quajon. Yeah. Also, postscript. You know, Adele mentioned that there's an opportunity for for Book to assist in helping Culber with with this now this issue of parent difficulty that Culber uh, shares with with um, with Book because you know Culber has hinted at some personal crisis of his own that he's been struggling with. And I assume he's talking about the, his death and resurrection, but it could turn out to be something completely unrelated to that. We don't know. We Hopefully it'll come, it'll come clear in the next couple of episodes. But the initial re reason for the moment with Book is so that he can make him aware that he's not alone in having to deal with grief. Culber appears to do this to earn Book's trust and establish a rapport with him. But it could mean more than that. Culber could be sharing a bit of personal information. Might mean that he is still processing some, mango, some mental anguish of his own. And we'll have to wait and see how this transpires. All right. So um, we got a few more fun facts. And bits uh, and pieces. And bits and pieces. So the quarry location where they shot the story with Tilly and the cadets was the same quarry we've seen before in The Wolf Inside in season one, If Memory Serves in season two, and Far From Home in season three. Yeah, that place has become their personal Vasquez It's their go-to. Go <laughs> it is their go-to. Yeah. Also, when Adira is trapped in the ice 
that was the return of the parasitic ice we were first in- introduced to last season um, in Far From Home. You remember that the ship got captured in the ice that continued to grow around and may hold it down. Yeah. Um, and then w- we we both wonder, what does COVID hold a doctorate in? You know, <laughs> he's Dr. COVID. Okay. What could a geriatric man with a monotone sleep-inducing speech pattern possibly be hired to consult upon at Starfleet Academy? Uh, the secret around this dude was okay last season, but now it's getting to be a bit irritating. We need some answers. I think it's only fair that we know what he's an expert in. I right, mean, I right. mean, he, he knew something about parallel universes. He knows, you know, he seems to know something about a whole host of things. Right. So just... What, what's his specialty? Yeah, yeah. Give us more information. <laughs> Give us more Okay, let's move on to our Easter eggs. And there were a couple, but the one I'm going to pick is actually one shared by this episode and a few others. You know, Discovery has been giving Star Trek Enterprise, the series that preceded Discovery, in you know, chronologically. Well, and pro- pro- the chronological production. Yes, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a great deal of love with all the mentions and Easter eggs that has dropped this season. You know, in in the season opener, we had we were introduced to the Archer Spice Dock, and when President Relic re- revealed the new dock, um, we clearly heard the end credit theme from the show, which is called Archer's Theme, and it um, composed by Dennis McCarthy. In fact, it's the only good bit of. Of, of music, theme music from that show, to be honest with you. Also, at the end of this week's episode, Tilly gives Adira a snow globe that we've talked about, and that starship inside the globe is an NX-01 class, meaning the same class as the first Enterprise introduced in Star Trek Enterprise. Now, next week's episode, and this is a, this is a teaser, so you know, we're going to be reacquainted with the Akali, and an alien species we were first introduced to in Civilization, Episode 9, from Enterprise first season. So it seems as if they're, they're really trying to pepper this, this season for some reason, but a lot of references back to Enterprise and pull it more into the fold for people. Because to be honest with you, it has had a tendency to drop off the radar for a lot of fans. Yeah, I think... Um, we are going to see Archer. Maybe not in you this think season. That. You think that. I don't. But uh, I think he's going to pop up on somebody's uh, show. Um, I think it's going to be a surprise. I think it's less likely on this show yeah. than it is on Strange New Worlds. But, okay. Yeah. Right. And, okay. and Scott Bakula, of course, the actor who uh, portrayed Archer, uh, his show uh, went off the air after yeah. many seasons. His, his NSI, what was it, New Orleans? Yeah, New Orleans. Yeah. So, he, you know, he's got time. And and they both were produced by CBS, Vi- Viacom CBS. So, right. So, yeah, he could easily find I just don't think these hints are being dropped for no reason. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's other folks they could talk to. There's a whole lot of other things that they could bring up. I just, I, I just appreciate the fact that they're bringing that show. It's, you know, it's not perfect. There but there are, are some good episodes. There are there. some good episodes. You know, the, yeah. fir- the first season is Archer gets his ass kicked every, every week. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, literally, he gets beat up by somebody every week. Yeah, and then, and then there's some good episodes peppered in there. But the fourth episode, the and fourth unfortunately, season, the, the fourth I, mean, se- I mean, the fourth season, yeah. uh, Unfortunately, it's the last season, and that was the best season. Yeah, I think it's the most consistent overall. Yes. I mean, yeah. So I'm going to talk about my Easter egg, which is the Galileo 7. The challenges faced by Tilly and the shipwrecked crew on a hostile planet instantly reminded me of the original series episode, The Galileo 7, which premiered during the first season on January 5th, 1967. In the episode, the Galileo shuttlecraft crash lands on Taurus II with Spot, Scotty, McCoy, and Starfleet crew on board. On the planet, 
uh, like Tilly and company, the Enterprise crew must fight for their lives when the planet's inhabitants don't take kindly to their presence. Yes, giant furry yeah. uh, spear throwers. Spear throwers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it looked cheap, but you know. Oh, it looks so cheap. Okay. <laughs> it looks so cheap. One of the two writers credited on the Galileo 7 was S. Bar David. The name was Shimon Winchelberg's writing alias. Shimon also wrote the, the original series episode, Dagger of the Mind, as well as episodes for Lost in Space, mm. The Time Tunnel, mm. and other genre shows of the time. Well, let's hope those were the better episodes of those shows. <laughs> Woo! There are two parallels with the Discovery episode. There was a conflict among the crew. Mm-hmm. In the Galileo episode, an astrophysicist named Lieutenant Balma clashes with First Officer Spock. Lieutenant Balma was played by African American actor Don Marshall, who was one of the few black actors of the 1960s and 70s to be regularly featured as a primetime lead on screen. He is best remembered for his role as First Officer and co pilot. Dan Erickson in the science fiction series Land of the Giants. <laughs> also, I enjoyed that show. You're I, laughing. You have but said that report, for, I, but you've now named three Irwin Allen TV shows. Yeah, all I mean, of all of them. I watched them all. Yeah, I yeah, watched them yeah, all. Yeah. Also, in the Galileo episode, Spock insists uh, insists to uh, McCoy, it is more rational to sacrifice one life than six doctor. So like Spock, Tilly adheres to this principle when she is willing to potentially sacrifice her own life to buy time for Adira and the cadets to be located and beamed to safety by the USS Armstrong. Yeah, that that sacrifice of the, of the few for the many is something that keeps on resonating throughout this season. That was definitely a part of the rescue of the yeah. crewmen on the space station in episode one, and so we're going to probably hear this play out more throughout the remainder of the season. That's right. Okay, let's move on to Star Trek news. And let's start with the latest episode of The Ready Room. The most recent episode of The Ready Room featured an interview with Mary Wiseman. For the most part, the conversation revolved around her character's decision to leave her discovery assignment in order to join the faculty of Starfleet Academy. One of the highlights of the interview was a revelation by host Will Wheaton on how that decision personally touched him. It is in no secret that, like Tilly, Will had a dysfunctional relationship with his own parents in his real life. Um, Tilly's decision to follow her own path instead of the expectations set for her by her mother mirrored Will's own journey of self-realization and thus affected him deeply. You know, and he and he shared that 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 reaction with us as well as with uh, Mary Wiseman. So the the Ready Room episode ended with a feature on the snow globe and Tilly that Tilly gave to Adira, as well as a look at the trailer for next week's episode. So now we'd like to talk about a recent Star Trek documentary. In November, we informed our listeners of a multi-episode documentary that was debuting on the History Channel entitled The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek. Gary and I finally got a chance to see the first four episodes, and we're glad we did. It proved to be a highly informative and revealing look at the franchise featuring interviews with actors and production staff. The series is narrated by TNG star Gates McFadden, who also serves as the documentary's narrator. The only subject I would say that was not addressed by the film was the sexism portrayed in the series as well as behind the scenes. However, overall, both Gary and I highly recommend uh, that Star Trek fans give it a watch. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to like about this. In some cases, we're hearing from certain um, members of the production staff throughout the TV series and or the films for the first time. And they're giving us some really important background information about the execution. In, in, in many cases, uh, 
how the shows came about, things that happened behind the scenes, and also some of the frictions that existed amongst as members of the production. Okay. So in episode one, entitled Lucy Loves Trek, it focuses on the development of the series. And as expected, the show includes a bio on Trek's creator, Gene Roddenberry, and his vision for the show. However, it also reveals there would be no Star Trek if Lucille Ball, the head of Desilu Studios, had not personally greenlit two really expensive pilots for the time and invested in these series uh, for their first two seasons. In fact, it's because of her desire to create profit-making series on par with her own, Lucy's show, Mm -hmm. that she wanted to invest in these. And then she went against the advice of her board and other members of of, of Desilu Productions. Episode two, entitled Saturday Morning Pinks, provides a detailed and fascinating look at Star Trek the animated series, including the important roles served by Dorothy Fontana as the series showrunner. In fact, in the, in the first episode, they really talk about how she was really a pioneer uh, for a woman to be uh, serving as a story editor mm-hmm. for the original series. Uh, she was actually the youngest a storyteller, a story editor working in the business at the time. Yeah, there's a lot of credit for the success of Star Trek that it should be landing at the feet of Dorothy Fontana. Yep. The episode rightfully asserts the series was a canonical extension of the original series, only it was produced in animated form. Right, and the other thing that it does is that in that episode... We clearly learned that the animated series is the only Star Trek series to receive an Emmy outside of the technical fields. Mm. That's an important distinction because none of the other series, no matter how much we've loved or how well-crafted they've been, have been recognized for the excellence in execution as the animated series was. So in episode three, which was entitled Trekking Through the 70s, we looked at the history of the development of, of Star Trek Phase Two, and eventually into um, the motion picture. And it surveyed Roddenberry's attempts to repackage Trek for television, as well as an extensive examination of the rocky production history of the first feature film, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Episode 4, entitled Trek Goes to the Movies, takes a deep dive into the production of the second feature film, The Wrath of Khan, which today is known as the most critically acclaimed movie starring the original cast. So um, let's talk a little bit about what we liked about those first four episodes. Yeah, If you don't mind, I'll go first. Okay. Okay. So there's several things I appreciated about the documentary thus far um, as it looked at the Star Trek franchise. Obviously, the first is that the documentarians accurately call it the greatest franchise in television history. When you think about it, no other show has generated as much appeal both on television and in the films as Star Trek. They they document the documentary also devotes significant time and attention on several aspects of the franchise that haven't been given as much attention in, um, in the past. Specifically revealing the truth behind the production of Star Trek, the motion pictures, as we just talked about. The fact that they, that they devoted an entire episode to detailing all the ego clashes and delays and other chaos that went on to br- and in the process of bringing that film to the screen, allowed for a frank examination of that ill-fated production for the first time. We heard from... Um, Harvey, Harvey um, Livingston, who was, I mean, Harold Livingston, excuse me, um, who was the co-writer of the screenplay and his experience of working on that. On that fr- and I know f- as that first film is a fan favorite for some people, it's, but it's not mine. And if you find anything entertaining about, about it, the third episode of this documentary will show you why that is in spite of, not because of, the way the production ran. Um, other things that I liked about the series was that it gave the animated series 
its due finally by spending a full episode discussing the evolution of the idea of an animated Star Trek series from beginning to its final execution. It highlighted the show's remarkable achievements, as well as we now have um, the foundation for why the two current animated series are important in the fabric of Star Trek. You have to remember that the animated series was one where the credibility of the writing was given as much serious contention, attention as the TV series had been. So we had science fiction writers writing episodes of a, of a Saturday morning cartoon show and the writing, the quality of the writing being as important. If you just take one episode alone, um, Yesteryear, which is a Spock-specific episode, the events in that where Spock goes uses the Guardian forever to go back into his past, we find that the elements in that episode are as important to us in regards to how we know the upbringing of Spock today as anything that we saw on the original series. But finally, I think the greatest contribution that this documentary does is in addressing the legacy of Gene Roddenberry. Um, no one can deny him the credit due for the initial creation of the show and how he envisioned the future where mankind had evolved beyond many of the challenges and prejudices that still plague us today. But throughout the development of Star Trek into the phenomenon it is today, Roddenberry could, have, could be as much of a hindrance to its progress as he was a passion advocate for it. In several cases, he behaves in ways that contradict the notions of him as this bold visionary who lived by the ideals espoused in his TV show. Um, the documentary gives us a frank and, I, and a be honest, I think an honest look at his creative skills, personal shortcomings, and how they impacted his creation throughout his lifetime. Yeah, so... I am going to talk about Star Trek, the motion picture. So longtime listeners of the podcast know that that film was a tremendous disappointment for me when I first saw it at a midnight show the day it was originally <laughs> premiered. I felt it failed to incorporate the characteristics I most loved about the show. That is, it was character centered and it made one hopeful for the future. After many years of watching reruns of the original series, I came to care about these characters and enjoy watching them work together to address whatever challenge they may face during those episodes. The design aspects in the film, especially the costumes and the set, seem to have little connection to the designs and color palette of the original series. And of course, it was almost as if the characters were working together for the first time. The Center Seat documentary gave me the first in-depth analysis of why the film appeared so disjointed and unsatisfactory as an entertainment experience. <laughs> that was because there was no clear unified vision for the movie being that it was literally being scripted as it was being filmed. In fact, they didn't even know what the ending of the movie would be until a few weeks before it was going to be shot. Knowing reasons behind the numerous production issues does not make one appreciate the film more, but it did help me to understand why it turned out the way it did. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really clear why it turned out the way it did. Um, yeah, all the, the, the battles on rewrites and whose script oh, was being yeah. used. And, um, man, it's a wonder the thing even got to the screen at all. Exactly. And the only thing you find out in the film and the documentary that the only reason why it, they were pushing so hard to, to get it to the theaters is because they had a contract with the, with the distributors, distributors yeah. that if they didn't get it out by a certain date, then they would lose millions of dollars. Right. Paramount would have lost millions yeah, of dollars. Yeah. And as it turned out, they were able to get it there. And it was, in spite of the quality of, this, of the film, it was successful primarily overseas. Yeah, in fact, but in fact, they said uh, when they were doing the premiere of the film, the film was still wet. I yeah, mean, they had, yeah, you know, yeah. just 
finished uh, the production of it, and they said, well, they thought the film would dry. Dry out in the projector, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the first episode of the documentary is no longer available on the History Channel for free. However, episodes two through four can still be streamed um, um, on the History Channel website. And um, you need, but you need to hurry. Episode two will only be available until December 18th. And episodes three and four will only be available until December 25th and January 2nd. I mean, January 1st, respectively. The remaining six episodes of the documentary are available through the History Channel Vault website. If you do not have free access to it, you can elect a free seven-day trial of the streaming service. Gary and I will watch and review one of the remaining episodes each week for the next six weeks. Yeah, we'll see what that looks like. I think it's going to be interesting. Again, I think if they keep the pattern that they've set up thus far, right. they're, they will have voices that haven't traditionally been heard talking about the execution. One of the things that, you know, again, you know, one of the things I think was a revelation that they brought out, we've always heard about the, the long production days, work days for the cast on the more recent series, you know, since Next Generation and on. But what we, what we come to realize is that was a pattern of behavior that actually goes back into the, the 60s. So it's not strange that you would have this really difficult set with all these tensions and have people find find some friction that would be developed there. Yeah, in fact, they said with the original series uh, that there wasn't one member of the production staff that wasn't at some time hospitalized for exhaustion right, right. because they were working six days a week and working 12 to 14-hour days. Right, so so although we, we may think that that's a... More recent occurrence with shows like with with series like Next Generation and Deep Space Nine or Voyager, that's really something that's actually part of the process that we've seen from the very first show. Yeah, probably the only show that didn't have that kind of overextended production um, schedule is the animated series. Right. <laughs> Correct. So now we want to talk about the last convention appearance for Nichelle Nichols. According to People magazine, Nichols, one of the stars of the original Star Trek series and a pioneering recruiter of women and minorities for America's space program, made her final convention appearance before her many fans as part of a three-day farewell celebration at L.A.'s Comic-Con last weekend best known for playing communications officer Niota Uhura aboard the Starship Enterprise, the iconic actress, singer, and dancer, who turns 89 on December 28th, signed autograph, posed for photos, and attended an early birthday celebration where she was briefly but joyfully kicked up her heels and danced. Nichols was also the subject of tribute panels throughout the convention, though she did not make any public statements. An active figure on stage, TV, and in music since the early 60s, Nichols' public and professional life has been slowing down since she was diagnosed with dementia in 2018. And she has also been at the center of a conservatorship battle um, recently. However, she was all smiles during her many appearances in her retirement tour in, at the Comic-Con L.A. Nichols was seen waving, blowing kisses, and flashing Star Trek's famous Vulcan salute to many fans who turned out to bid her farewell. The actress, who did chat privately with various people close to her, was surrounded by members of her family and longtime friends, including Nichols' son, Kyle Johnson, who served as her spokesperson. Her younger sister, Marion Michaels, actresses Judy Pace and Beverly Todd, and former astronaut Dr. Mae Jemison, who joined NASA as a result of Nichols' role in recruiting women and minorities into the space program in the 1970s and 1980s as a result of her Star Trek fame. In a moving moment during Nichols' farewell panel on Sunday, NASA astronaut appearance specialist Denise Young, who said she too was inspired to pursue a career at the agency due to the inspiration provided by Nichols' Star Trek role, bestowed the actress with a special agency prestigious 
NASA Exceptional Public Achievement Medal for her four decades of activism in diversifying NASA's ranks. During the panel, Nichols rose from her wheelchair to accept the award as the audience gave her a standing ovation. In a video tribute, Star Trek Discovery actress Sonequa Martin-Green spoke of the debt that she owed Nichols, who in her Star Trek role was one of the first black actors to appear in a regular television role with a highly skilled profession. According to Martin Green, Nichols' legacy can be described as that of a sacrificial heroic contribution. She decided to stay and ultimately devoted her entire self to the progression of black people, people of color, and women. And she gave everything. She gave her time, her energy. She gave her intelligence, her wisdom, her leadership, and her heart to the betterment of the world and the future. I am only here because of her. Yeah, so, you know, we can't say enough how much we're touched by uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols and everything she went through. Uh, so, bravo, bravo. No, it's a, it's a, it's a justified tribute to somebody um, at the end of their career. Yeah. And, you know, you should give folks their flowers while they can still smell them. That's right. So in closing, we'll be back next week with our review of The Examples, Star Trek Discovery's fifth episode of season four. In addition, we would like to remind you to share a link of Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. Until that time. Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD, on Facebook at our facebook.com site. Um, our website at StarTrekAOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.